0: On the Dallas Opera Network, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh,
1: let's
2: get ready to rumble!
1: Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined on America's Talk radio show about opera by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, It's a classic NFC East matchup. Suiting up for Philadelphia, tenor Lawrence Brownlee meets our Dallas Opera Network team to talk about singing the hardest music ever written, being an ambassador for opera to the black community, and maybe a little fantasy football. Plus, two-minute drill, middle-class artist throws a flag on YouTube auditions, and Jonas Kaufman wants you for Christmas. Ashley Hardgrave going to go straight to you for our sports talk this week.
3: Uh, yes, I think, that <laughs> besides my screen name, the other biggest thing that we need to talk about uh, is a million congrats. I need to go to Kim Ng. She is Major League Baseball's first female general manager. So effective, Amazing. I think immediately or in the next couple of weeks, uh, she's going to be running the Miami Marlins. So she is the first woman to run a team, the first Asian American to run any Major League Baseball team. She is the first female general manager for any major American franchise. Also, she did Damn. get her start in Chicago in the front office of my beloved Chicago White Sox. So congratulations <laughs> to her. And good job, Derek Jeter, for this hire. Good
1: well, job. maybe the hiring of a former White Sox front office person like Ing will take the curse off them also hiring Tony La Russa. Whoops. Let's talk some opera. Huddle
0: up. Let's go inside the huddle.
1: So, uh, yeah, Oliver. Some more on Gilbert and Sullivan together. That's
4: all right. You know, we're very lucky <laughs> that uh, Opera Philadelphia helped set this up for us. Um, we managed to score an interview with none other than the cover boy of the current issue of Opera News Magazine, um, the star of two Opera Philadelphia virtual performances, sorry, Dallas Opera Network, and somebody who just dropped a recording, Amici e Rivale uh, Rossini arias and duets with Michael Spires. I didn't and know amazing. Tobias
2: was doing all of those things all over.
1: <laughs> He's a so busy little. Busy. We have
4: Larry Brownlee on the show today. <laughs> and because we were going to talk probably about sports and you'll watch Matt and I, our eyes glaze over for a second, but, um, I understand <laughs> it's that. Okay.
0: You, we got, we got some deep cuts in from, from,
4: from <laughs> you and George are too. in a fantasy football league with against, that's going to be playing against Larry Brownlee. Um, so we had to bring our our own team. You know what you call it when you have a pinch hitter or something like that, like somebody who's like on the bench. You know, so we had to. It's a pinch hitter, <laughs> okay, or cutting off See, from I the bench. So we're bringing off the bench uh, our friend Tobias Wright to join us for this interview.
5: Well, uh, first of all, thank you for having me here on Opera Box Score. All of you. Uh, Oliver, Toby, Matt, all of you guys, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to chat with you. Thanks for all the nice things you said. Lawrence Brownley and friends, Larry Brownlee and friends, uh, you know, it was meant to be something that uh, was meant to reach out to all the people of the city. You know, when we do these, we want to try to make sure that uh, everyone feels invited. Uh, and we want to tell people that the music of opera is not that uncool. It's very cool. And it's not that far from maybe some of the music you know. Uh, I grew up in church singing gospel. So that was my foundation. And I've done all different styles of music and I also sing opera. And I think a lot of people have this natural reaction to opera. They think, oh, that's something else that I don't really like or I don't understand. And what we want to try to do with these Lawrence Brownlee and Friends concerts is try to show them that it's not that far of a distance from what you love as I said before, to what opera is and show that the same people who do uh, some of these operatic pieces can also do some popular song, can also do some spirituals and maybe, you know, whatever, you know, something that really identifies to a different person that likes a different style of music is what I want to say. So I've been uh, happy to do that. You know, I'm one of these artists that feel like we as uh, musicians and artists should reach out to the community to, uh, to fight for our art form uh, to try to be in the trenches and advocating for this. And so that's the reason why I do it uh, with Lawrence Brownlee and friends and also giving voice at Houston grand opera is, you know, my baby as well and opera Philadelphia and all these things uh, we've been reaching out to communities. And thankfully a lot of the people in these various cities have been so uh, impressed by the, By the performances, but also have expressed interest into giving opera a try, and so that is at the root of it. The hope, you know, that people would, you know, really try try to engage themselves and trying to uh, come to these operatic performances, but uh, it's been successful thus far, and I hope to to do this more in the future.
6: And just kind of following up that, Larry, can you talk a little bit about? Uh, you know, it's it's an outreach event trying to tap into communities. But can you talk about curating the program? You know, there's such a mixture. How do you decide what goes on there and thematically intertwining music theater, gospel, opera to to tell the story and make the ask of the audience to then come back? Can you just talk about that
5: a little bit? Well, the first thing we do is we start with the artists themselves. What do you guys like to sing? You know, if someone says I don't sing anything, uh, pop music or I don't sing any, any popular song or any spirituals or anything like that then of course we're not going to include something on the program that doesn't you know, mesh with them. But we try to pick a diverse group of artists. Uh, it's for the most part it has been artists of color and it doesn't always have to be because I always think the diversity is more than just black people. Diversity is a lot more than that. And so uh, more iterations in the future will have more diversity as far as like ethnicities as well. But we take the program and we say, okay, these are the different styles we want to try to approach. What would you like to sing? Because I think it also originates from what people like to do and so uh for example when we did it at Lyric Opera of Chicago Solomon Howard who's an incredible operatic singer but he also sang Stevie Wonder and he grew up in that style and he played the congas and the tambourine and so he said let's just go completely left field and do this and I was like oh my gosh and that was one of the highlights of the show at um Chicago and so we try to like try to Go through the different genres and then just find what people can offer and whatever that is, and then that's how we put it together. But this, that's something that's um, diverse, something that is um, varied uh, so people can enjoy it. We want people to have that wow factor, oh my gosh, an opera singer can also do this. And so that's been the root of what we've wanted to do. And so as we reach out to the you know the people after the concert, and you know when we were in Chicago, I'm, I'm speaking to Chicago. Uh, when we were there, so many people said, oh, my gosh, this is an incredible experience. And we didn't even have to do the work as much as they told us, I'm going to come back. When is an opera that, you know, is maybe suitable for a first time Uh, And, you know, we tell them, of course, you probably don't want to go to Parsifal in your first opera, <laughs> uh, but probably, you know, do something like a magic flute or maybe a modern piece or something like that to kind of whet your appetite. And then from there, uh, relationships have begun. So that's kind of. Uh, the the process we like to have when we do the concerts, and hopefully it is something that will stick, so they'll be wanting to come uh, to the first thing they can get their hands on a ticket for. Oh
6: Lord, come.
4: So I feel like I have to say Solomon Howard, he's very easy on the eyes. So it also helps. So, <laughs> sorry, Eileen. Um, but as you were saying about, um, you know, have them bring out their other skills, whenever an opera singer does anything besides sing, it's like magic all of a sudden. It's like, what, exactly. you play the drums? What, you play the tambourine? Like, like what? <laughs> so it's always so impressive to see people's other skills. And Solomon is also a percussionist. And uh, he did this acapella cappella swing low, sweet chariot, uh, accompanied on the tambourine, but he was using like all these different techniques on the tambourine. I was like literally blown away because at one point it sounded like a chain gang and another point it sounded like a celebration. And I was
5: like, what, what is happening here? <laughs> it was so
4: impressive. And he's Can,
5: just- Can't confirm, Oliver yeah. cried
4: yeah
5: (laughs) (laughs) you know that was my debut as my professional tambourine debut i have to say that uh but no solomon that guy is so incredibly talented and one of the things we've talked about doing it and hopefully we'll do it in the future is having a concert that's a little bit more involved where you know i see maybe you can see in the background i have a couple of guitars and my instrument is really the bass guitar and we've talked about morris robinson who's like one of my best friends him coming and singing, but also playing the drums. And then I'm singing, but playing the bass guitar, having Solomon on percussion. We have a couple pianists like Will Liverman and a couple other guys, uh, but to do an evening that is varied where we also come and do the instrumentation as well as the singing. So uh, hopefully we'll come, uh, uh, that'll happen sooner than later, but that's in, that's on the books. That's on, that's in the plans rather to do something nice. like that.
0: And it, it's so great to have events like these that can really serve as a bridge between the, these opera houses and communities who don't always get the kind of attention that they deserve from organizations like that. Um, and in particular, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the, about, about the black community and, and your role as an ambassador for opera into those communities. Can, can you talk a little bit about what your experience has been
5: well, so many people still have this idea. Oh, my gosh, I didn't know a black pe- person sung. Oh, I don't know that we sing, you know, black people sing classical music. And then I am I'm there to tell them that some of the greatest singers of all times has been, have been black singers like Leontine Price, Paul Robeson, William Warfield, Martina Arroyo, Kathleen Battle. Just I mean, I could go on and on and on. And they don't know these names. They're not household names. But once they realize that we have a tremendous legacy in this, uh, in this, and then they see us, the younger generation, out there and getting the opportunities, like a Solomon, like myself, Janae Bridges, and Denise Graves, and Angel Blue, getting the chance to sing leading roles in the world, the world's most important stages. Uh, they're much more um, eager to come and actually experience. You know, the same thing is true when you think about golf. You know, a lot of people didn't like it until Tiger Woods was doing it. A lot of people didn't like tennis until the Williams sisters were doing it. A lot of Mm -hmm. people don't like NASCAR, didn't until Bubba, uh, whatever his name is, Bubba Wallace, I think his name is. Mm -hmm. Bubba Wallace. And so once they see us and that we're serious artists, that we're respected and that, you know, we bring our very best, I think that opens up their eyes. And so they see as a community that they want to support us. And so that's the thing we've been trying to do is to show them that, you know, we get the chance to be on the stage and it will be wonderful for us to look out in the audience and to see a <laughs> representation, you know, of people that look like us as well. And so, uh, that is growing. And I can tell you from my own experience thus far, for the different houses that I've worked with in Philadelphia, Houston, and Chicago to this point, and I've seen, you know, small, but a noticeable increase in what I see the people that are performing when I'm on stage. Yeah. So oh, go ahead, Matt.
0: Well, and and so we have coming up at the end of this week on the on November twentieth, Upper Philadelphia is going to be launching the Cycles of My Being recording, and that is uh, some compared to all of these other operas that were written by dead white guys. You know, these are two <laughs> living Black, a living black composer and a living black playwright on the vanguard of these issues and written directly in response to the the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor protests that broke out this year. Like, what is that like for you to be, to be carrying that torch?
5: Well, it was important for me. And a few years ago, one of my friends, his name is Jason Moran. He's a incredible jazz pianist. He and I talked about the fact that it is important for us to use our art as a platform. And we talked about the fact that when we see things that are on our heart, that we must speak out. And so uh, the cycles of my being started about three years ago, maybe three and a half years ago, where I woke up in the middle of the night and I was like, Crap, another person, you know, we had already lived through Trayvon. We would already lived through Eric Garner and Mike Brown and so many other things. And I was planning a recital to sing at Carnegie Hall. And I was like, I need something to pair with this. And it was about a year out. And so I said, wouldn't it be great to have a song cycle that spoke about the experience of black men in America, black men and women? And so I reached out to a couple of friends and I just thought it was important to have a African-American or black composer and playwright. And so for us to bring our collective experiences together to talk about what it means to be a Black man in the United States, Uh, we know that our reality is different than someone who looks like every one of you. You know, maybe, Oliver, you have some, you know, some idea of what that is. But, you know, uh, for Matt and Toby, it's a little bit different uh, for the experience. And so we realize that we have Uh, some difficulties and for us to take a hold of the conversation and to talk about things like love, about faith, about family, about hope. hope, I think what the hope is that people will be able to live a little bit in our shoes Um, and uh, it's it was a passion project for me uh, that was important for me to kind of put out in the atmosphere and I'm thankful that Opera Philadelphia uh, wanted to be a part of it and to make that become a reality.
4: This is a really hard needle to thread, and I don't even think I have fully formed this question in my mind yet, but hopefully you'll see where I'm going with it. Um, it may you know, take when...
6: us while, It may take us a while to get there, but we'll get there.
4: <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are prominent Black artists throughout history, and you I count you among them now, who, you know, have their specialty, like Leontine with Verity and Jesse with Strauss and Wagner and you with Belcanto, but are also somehow always expected to sing spirituals and recital and whatnot. And I actually am craving that when I go here, you sing. I am now, I want to hear you sing that rep now that I know what you do with it. Um, But do you have any resentment about the fact that there are, you know, black composers throughout history, like William Grant still, or, you know, um, Florence price or Margaret bonds who didn't, who wrote in, you know, a, sort of traditional classical idiom, but we only want to hear their spiritual arrangements?
5: You know, a lot of them perhaps didn't get the opportunity to develop those different styles. Uh, Even Charlie Parker, I did an opera called Yardbird, and they talked about the fact that he wanted to uh, write a symphony. And Mm -hmm. he was so incredibly influenced by Stravinsky. And so uh, when you think about our country and the problems we've had and the fact that there has been a, a lack of opportunities across the board, especially in developing talent and other things, uh, you you wonder what an opera like, you know, could have been from William Grant Steele or, you know, Margaret Bonds, as you mentioned, or, you know, Odine Smith or w- William P- Willis Patterson. There's so many other people, if they had had that support and had the avenues open to them that they could develop this the talent, maybe we would have some pieces in our, in our repertoire now that were living things that would live well, well beyond their lifetimes uh, because they'd had that support. But I'm thankful that these people did contribute great things in the spiritual realm. And for me, it is something that I also like, that I always like to present when I do recitals because I think it is a wonderful opportunity, but also a responsibility to carry on these traditions many of us who grew up in church and know these songs, it is something that was passed down through the generations by rote and by, you know, not necessarily written, that, written down. A lot of these things that we see, um, like H.T. Burley and some of these other things, that's just a sketch, if you want to call it, of what the spiritual is. But to really understand how it goes, you know, it's just something that you heard somebody singing in the house and it's been t- passed down. And so that is much of Americana as, you know, um, the Star Spangled Banner or, you know, Dixie or some of these other things that we think, oh, that's Americana. I think these spirituals are so, also are a very important part of the DNA of this country as well. And so I personally like to uh, perform them any chance I get the opportunity. Hmm.
0: And we are fortunate to get the opportunity to hear you sing new repertoire uh, as of yesterday with your new album that dropped. Uh, Amici Rivali with with Michael Spires with your 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 Rossini arias and duets that that I I listened to it this morning while I was was, uh while I was baking a pie and it is (laughs) phenomenal I have to say
5: oh man thank you it's uh this is for us Michael and I this is just really trying to carry on the tradition of you know there's an incredible amount of American bel canto singers Rockwell mm-hmm. Blake, Bruce Ford, Greg Kunde, Chris Frank Merritt, Lepardo, Frank Lepardo, absolutely, Frank Lepardo, Stan Olson, Paul Austin Kelly, John Ayler, you know, some of the younger people, uh, Richard Croft, you know, um, oh, yeah. John Osborne, Renee Barbera, uh, gosh, Michael Spires, you know, <laughs> there are a lot of people <laughs> out there, uh, American. So uh, we were influenced so heavily by some of these people, and it really did. Uh, give us the confidence or the belief that we could be successful doing this repertoire so Michael is like a walking cyclopedia and he was hmm. responsible for pulling a lot of this repertoire together and so the two of us together we recorded it last year in Verona and uh, anticipating the release of it so much and so it's something that we're very very proud of and thankfully some people got their hands on it before it released a lot of the reviewers and I'm just happy to say, uh, that we've, you know, thankfully they've been giving us like across the board, like five-star reviews, you know, and, uh, I'm happy that people are appreciating it and hopefully we'll get a chance to concert this thing because I think that you can really understand the brilliance of Rossini, uh, when you can listen to his pieces that he wrote, not necessarily us singing him, uh, but you'll think, my gosh, he wrote that for a tenor. And, uh, <laughs> I think people can, you know, there are a lot of high notes that we threw in, but, uh, I think people can tell that Michael and I had the best time doing this album. We love talking about um, style,
4: a vocal style on opera box score. And can you, since you have so much experience, I mean, we have sort of an idea about the difference between (laughs) like Rossini, Donizetti and Bellini. I mean, we know that Rossini's phrases are a little bit shorter. And we know that Bellini's phrases are a little bit more punishing. And we know that Donizetti has more of the orchestration that sort of is suggesting Verdi. What is it like for you and what maybe necessarily different things do you have to do in each of those, you know, niche composers when it comes to the tenor rep?
5: You know, Rossini, of course, everybody thinks about the Fioratura, mm-hmm. you know, and it um, that's, you know, the flexibility, the likeness, even when you're singing things that are not necessarily, um light, like a Barber Seville or like La Contori or Italian Girl in Algiers. Uh, but even when you're singing La Donna del Lago and Amida, you need the flexibility and, and the ability to move your voice and not really plant your feet and kind of like dig in like you have to do on a Bellini. If you think of Bellini, of course, Ate Okada, Puritani, and Sonambula, it really uh, requires uh, some tenacity, um, you know, it's, it's it's punishing because the tessitura is high. It's high line, but it's kind of like uh, engaged from a technical standpoint that it's just like, I can't take any time off. You know, where Rossini is like, da 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 Bellini is like, da, 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 da. <laughs> I mean, if you think the third act of I Puritani, son salvo, al fin son salvo, <laughs> it's just like, it's, it's never-ending. Yeah. It's relentless. Uh, and, and, you know, Donizetti, as you talked about, the orchestration being a little bit thicker in some pl- in places. Um, everybody thinks about legato, 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 legato. Um, sometimes it's a little, bo- little bit more middle voice sitting, even though from time to time you get the opportunity to go and touch up, you never have to sit up there like you do with Bellini. Bellini just sits so high, so high. Even when you think about Sonambula, the duet, Da, 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 de, da, de, da, da. you just hang in that punishing area all night and so for me the difference is, is the flexibility of Rossini having to stay in this high um difficult tessitura of Bellini the higher sitting tessitura and then this the middle voice legato where the orchestration because can be a little bit thicker in Donizetti so those would be from my standpoint, the real differences between the three, there are some similarities. Of course, you have some Fioratura, in Donizetti and Bellini, but it's different in a way of uh, Rossini. And one of the things that Michael and I are doing as a part of this promotion, we're doing this thing called the Rossini Run Challenge. They're all different. <laughs> so all of you, you guys can take part in it as well. The Rossini Run Challenge, and so, <laughs> and it'll show you how difficult Rossini is, but in a different way than Bellini and Donizetti. So I think, let's you know, do it.
4: Can we set up a tournament? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
6: <laughs> <laughs> got a a turn- yeah. <laughs> so
5: there you I'm, go.
4: <laughs> not that like I want to like make this about me, but like I've always had flexibility in my voice, and I always could do the coloratura. But I'm I can do handle for days, but when mm-hmm. I sing Rossini, I get so exhausted. Like. I have all the notes in my voice is saying, Eco ridente, but I've never made it all the way through the aria. Oh, really? <laughs> have you ever had one of those days? And I just want to hear what it's like from you because like we think of you as being flawless technically, but please tell us that you have struggled at the end of Eco ridente, or something.
5: <laughs> oh my gosh, of course we all struggle, but the thing is what we have to do is try to mask our struggles. And sometimes we can't let the audience know, even if we're dying inside, mm-hmm. we got to like put on that face that you know, like I did everything I could to get to the end of this aria without <laughs> fainting. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, you t- I, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in the fact that you get on stage and nothing is like a machine. You know, you have to feel like you're living at the moment and there's flexibility. Sometimes you have to hold that high note a little bit shorter. Sometimes you have to like a take a detour uh, if something's not functioning correctly. Uh, You may have to take more breaths. You may have to plan out what you're going to do in a different way. So, yes, we have our struggles. And I think it was Pavarotti that said that our voice and our technique is like this. No, it wasn't Pavarotti. Somebody else else said this. Our voice and our technique is like this. Sometimes you lean on your voice. Sometimes you lean on your technique because maybe they're not working. Then you have those few times that it happens. It lines up and everything's fine. So sometimes you'll be leaning on something. You're like, oh, that's not working. So I just need to get through it. And as an artist at a certain level, you have to make sure that it's acceptable, whatever you do, uh, but it may not be what you are, the the absolute height of what you're capable of doing. So uh, just being smart with what you have in that moment on that evening, I think is very, very important as an artist uh, to make sure that the audience doesn't know you're about to pass out.
0: Do you ever get to an ornament and decide to go for a different one in the moment? And Yes, uh, absolutely. And... and yeah, uh, like are all of them always planned out in advance? Like you have your, your Rolodex of the ones that you know that you're going to go for. <laughs>
5: <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah. I think, you know, you have some of them planned out and um, you have a number that you can pick from. And usually okay. I don't do it right in the second before, but maybe at the beginning of the RE, I'll say, you know, I feel a little bit frisky today. So let me try something <laughs> that uh, I was working on. So, Instead of, uh, da, 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 you go, uh, da, 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 or something like that, a little variation, but you usually have practiced it before. You don't want to like be working on a moment to see if something might work. Uh So anything, <laughs> you, you know, it's like the more you know, the more you can show. So if you've had these things in your mind, or it may be something that you've done in another, in another aria that can fit in that moment there. And so you're like, okay, I've never done it in Echo Ridente, Dente, but I did a Languier per una bella. Does it work? I think it does work. And then you can like do something to infuse and make that performance a little bit more special. Can you talk just a little
6: bit, we've got a lot of singers who listen to this show, about <laughs> working with, and this is what an opportunity to get to ask you this, working with different conductors and how you get to kind of navigate uh, who makes the decisions on what, you know, when you're singing really difficult passages and how much do you personally find that you have to uh, readjust certain things based on who you're working with?
5: Well, at a certain level, people, they want to see you do their best. I mean, do your best because they want to do their best. And it's best not to have any type of conflict. So uh, a lot of them will ask you, What do you do here? Do you need any more time for something or how does it work for you? Or maybe they will suggest something. And of course, uh, at a certain level, I respect those people so much that they'll, that I feel like they're going to give me good information. Or they may say, what do you think about this after they've heard, heard me sing something? Or if they want me to do something, then I'll say to them, what do you think about this? Because this might actually work. And so there's usually collaboration and people are very, very open. I mean, I've done that with people like Benini and gosh, some of, the other, some of the other great Belcanto singers. But I think it comes from also the place that I I understand the style of Rossini, Donizetti, and Bellini. And I know that something that sounds Rossinian doesn't work in Bellini per se. And if I can understand the style, usually we can agree on what should, what should happen. But I always try to go to rehearsals very, very flexible uh, to make sure that um, if they're trying to bring something out different, uh, that is something that I could benefit on and make what I do better or enhance what I'm already offering. So um, it's one of the things that I always try to make sure I do is to try to stay open and available that they can give me uh, whatever could be helpful for me as a singer.
4: So we're going to nerd out just a little bit more. Um, (laughs) You know, we are all mostly familiar with a voice like Pavarotti and Corelli and Di Stefano. And when we listen to them for a long time, we can begin to understand their techniques. Like Pavarotti always begins to modify, you know, at around E natural or something like that sometimes before, you know. I've yet to figure out what your tells are, and and I would be curious to to wonder like what did you smooth out so that you have no tells, and what can we look forward to when you start getting older?
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, my teachers have told me that always I have to bring the head voice down mm-hmm. uh, and to make the voice unify unified from top to bottom, and so you know we know that tenors start to modify, do all kinds of stuff around E flat, E F, F sharp, or stuff like that. So, you know, when I've done exercises, you know, my teacher talks about going slim through the passaggio so there's no break in the register so that it sounds like one voice. And so I don't know. I think I've worked to try to smooth that over. Uh, sometimes I have to say, hmm, let's see. Oh, that didn't work like it should. And then I need to revert back to some of the things that my teacher told me. So what are my tails? I don't know. It's this idea uh, that I mean, I've already always had a high voice, but bringing this head voice down and really trying to have enough head headiness in my sound um, that hopefully that when you that it never feels like it's just a completely different voice when I go from the bottom to the top. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Um, It's all about bringing the head voice down and uh, and smoothing over that area between the E flat and where do I start to cover? You know, it happens automatically. I'm not necessarily thinking about it per se, but I think it starts happening E flat, E, D or something like that, that I begin to cover it. I actually was doing a, a master class earlier today and I was working with the sophomore, young, young tenor. And I was just like, I don't know if you heard the idea of cover yet, but cover starts to happen because if you can't, you can't sing that F wide open like that. That's not going to work. You got to make sure you've, start to modify before. And that's not necessarily the note that you have to sing there, but you may have to modify it earlier. So you can, you won't hear the break. And so that's the thing you have to understand with your voice, how it functions and where you have those breaks. And so you can uh, figure that area out.
4: So I'm sorry, I'm I'm sort of hoarding this question. But um, (laughs) we talked about before we started recording this um, song you sang at Larry Larry Brownlee and Friends, um, that you dedicate to your son. What is the name of it again? Um, all night, all day. Okay, so I hope you get to sing that in the next version of Larry Brownlee and Friends because it's (laughs) it's killer. (laughs) But I will say you do something different in that, and I don't know if you could describe it, but I know that I hear a different approach to your upper register. You're a little bit more open in that type of singing,
5: yeah, you know, and it's you know, there's this idea of voix (laughs) mixte. You know, mixed voice that I try to do and I do a lot of of heady hooting, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. heady hooting, That's all that other stuff that extends. Now, is that absolute falsetto? Not necessarily. I think there's a difference. In my opinion, there's a difference between uh, falsetto and head voice or voix mix, because I think there's a lot more body in the sound of voix mix rather than voice. Oh, so that when you go from you can make the transitions from going to that heady hootiness again uh, down into your voice without a break. And so, yes, I like to use that because if you're thinking of angels and, and, you know, in that realm and stuff like that, I think is appropriate for that song. So uh, it is one of the things that I try to employ because the way it was written, uh, the composer, Damien Sneed, a very good friend of mine, he wrote it very high. It's high. The whole thing. I think the highest note is a E flat, uh, and so that's Thanks. one of those. That's one of those pieces where you have to wear your shoes one size too small in order to sing it. That's the swan roasting. You're like, wow, I mean, that is really high. You know, that's
0: like middle voice for
5: you though. No, yeah. it's not. I'm like, what were you? Were you like, take you know, like taking helium in or that day or something like that? is so high but uh, yeah i do use that and that is another element of my singing that i want to try to do that i don't necessarily get to use in bel canto because of course you're always engaged singing in the full core of your voice but you know uh for example in barbara civis mm-hmm. that's the headier that's headier in the sound but i can sing in. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the same, you know, the same notes, but a different approach. And this is the thing. These are the things I think we need to explore as singers to to increase the. the Palate. Yeah. yeah the palette, yeah. you know, all the things we get a chance to choose from when we infuse our pieces. Jonas Kaufman, I know he's a big conversation, you know, these days because. <laughs> But, you know, Jonas. Are we going to talk the, about it. You know, one, <laughs> the, the, the thing I respect about Jonas, he has a lot of tricks up his sleeve. If you want to yeah, call that or he has a lot of elements or colors that he infuses his singing with. So I respect that. And so for me as an artist, I want to become more intelligent and be able to, you know, infuse what I'm doing by these various colors that I think. We um, have at our disposal. And as you know, I do a lot of art song recitals as well. And I think this is the place where you get a chance to explore these various things. And so um, the more I can do it in different pieces, I want to do it. Uh, Larry, I know that you are a giant Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Diehard, <laughs> diehard,
6: Pittsburgh um, native right
5: here. Oh, nice. I'm from Youngstown, Ohio. You know it. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Youngstown, yep. Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> so you're
6: they're having an incredible season, and I guess my question is to you. You know, Mike Tomlin, future Hall of Famer, Ben Roethlisberger, future Hall of Famer. They're undefeated at the midway point. So why is it that the Kansas City Chiefs are going to repeat as Super Bowl champions?
3: <laughs> I'm just kidding. Gonna, I'm, that's
6: I'm not a Chiefs gonna happen. <laughs>
5: You know, look, I, am I buying it just yet with the Steelers? I don't know. Look, uh, Steelers have won a couple close ones. And it's, you know, it's arguable that they could have won. Uh, excuse me, lost a few ones. Um, the Kansas City Chiefs, when they got beat by the Las, Las, Vegas, Las Vegas Raiders, it was a convincing loss. You know, it wasn't like they lost by the skin of their teeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of teams, you know, you know we played very poorly against the Dallas Cowboys last week, but I think you see, you know, the thing with people say about any given Sunday, uh, these are professional athletes and coaches who understand schemes and matchups and stuff like that too. Uh, The Steelers, um, could they win? I think they have the talent to win the Super Bowl. I'm not stupid enough to say that they will, uh, but I, you know, every week that they can kind of find it within themselves to somehow eke out a win, that's the type of, uh, team that you never count out so uh, I believe in my guys I got a chance to meet meet the coach I sang the national oh, anthem awesome. at the, the Steelers game one of these you know okay. a few years ago and so I'm a diehard Steelers fan my whole life that will always be my team if it's not my team that means I don't like football anymore but I'm a Steelers <laughs> <laughs> that's my squad forever
6: but I, I respect that and I was just teasing about the Chiefs thing and here's the thing about going 8-0 mm-hmm. there's no accidental 8-0 in There the you NFL. go. I mean that's impressive. So just wanted there- to put that out there. Also, you and I play each
5: other next week in fantasy football. In the fantasy uh- football, yeah. You know what? If so- I can if I can have my guys be healthy, good lord. I mean, <laughs> Nick Chubb is out. Chris Carson is out. Gosh, Devontae Parker had a ha- hamstring in. Uh, uh, injury cam newton has been horrible horrible uh, you've been but- really active on the waiver wire which i respect so you're making hey, that team like you're
6: hustling and i'm kind of scared hey. i feel like every team we play <laughs> it's just like we get blown out
5: Everybody has best, Yeah. hey here's here's the thing you know the championships are won on the waiver wire and last year in this in the fantasy i was winning the league the whole way i was like I had like two, three losses the whole season. I was doing well. But because the way we do it, it's like you leave the waiver priority for the, the lower ranking teams. And so they're always picking up players and making acquisitions and building their team. Towards the end of the season where if you've been good, you can never pick up anyone and if you get an injury later on or something happens You can never improve your team So I told I told some of the people that I'm kind of hanging around around the middle of the pack until I make my late season surge because I've got a <laughs> I'll, I'll be watching <laughs> I've got a
2: plan.
4: <laughs> Well, Larry Brownlee, thank you so much. Congratulations on the new record and we look forward to watching all your stuff. You're in so many places all the time. I don't know how you keep up
0: with everything <laughs> you're doing, but I don't um, either the,
4: the sit down <laughs> with Larry Brownlee and a uh, cycle of my being and the Larry Brownlee and friends coming up with opera, Philadelphia, so much stuff. Um, so um yeah, we're, we're watching and thank you for being on our show. Thanks thank you, so you much. guys. Thank you for having
5: me. Appreciate it. Go Steelers.
3: Support for Opera Box Score is provided in part by Opera Philadelphia.
1: Opera Philadelphia introduces the Opera Philadelphia Channel, a season of innovative, dynamic opera reimagined for the screen.
4: When are we gonna get our own channel? Well,
1: we George were supposed to the- be on um yeah, <laughs> yeah. R.I.P.
3: We were right after Game Show, and then then well, we're not now.
0: I heard Disney Plus was knocking after Hamilton was such a success though. Because oh, <laughs> this
3: is the same. Mm-hmm.
2: What else is on the channel?
0: The Opera Philadelphia channel features soprano Lisette Oropesa in her acclaimed role debut as Violetta in La Traviata. Oh, so love good her. Right now. Also so on the
4: Opera Philadelphia channel, internationally renowned tenor Lawrence Brownlee in two My recitals including... The searing cycles of my being, a reflection on being a black man in America. And I just want to remind everybody that if you just heard the interview with Larry Brownlee and I, he basically said that I'm black. So, um, that's great. Well, I mean, he said, he said compared to Toby and me. The two whitest people
2: on the planet.
3: (laughs) The bars, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: Also on the Opera Philadelphia channel, a new film of David T. Little's soldier song, uh songs I should say and I, I also want to say that David T. Little liked one of my posts on Facebook once so pretty much man. best Weston, we've heard famous.
1: that line so often <laughs> Ashley how do we get the Opera Philadelphia channel?
3: So the Opera Philadelphia channel is available on TVs it's available on computers and on mobile devices. You can do this two ways you can buy a season pass for just 99 bucks or you can rent individual productions at operaphila.tv that's Opera Phila, which is P H I L A dot TV, the Opera Philadelphia channel.
4: You know what? We've had David C. Little on our show. We've had Lawrence mm-hmm. Brownlee on our show. Mm-hmm. We just need to is get Lizette Oropeza. We'll as we'll long as you can pronounce
3: her last name, Oliver, we've got to get you to pronounce it right. <laughs> so Oropesa.
4: Oropeza.
2: <laughs> End of ad.
0: This just in. The two-minute drill.
1: All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Operaland this week.
2: In an eye-opening investigative report, middle-class artist examines the new trend of virtual auditions for emerging artists. Equipped with YouTube analytics data from 15 artist interviews and input from leading opera companies, Zach Finkelstein joins us to crunch the numbers.
3: The American Guild of Musical Artists, or AGMA, has begun a membership-wide vote to amend its constitution. Members will vote in a referendum for either a complete revision of the constitution, a set of amendments to the existing constitution called the Petition Amendments, or neither. Members will also vote on amending dues caps, as well as a reduction of the initiation fee.
0: A 65-foot-tall Marc Chagall-designed curtain that once hung in front of the Met stage is up for auction. It's such a quintessentially Chagall image, with multiple figures and a swirling fantasy flying through the air, said Bonham's Auction House Senior Vice President Molly Ott Ambler. The curtain is expected to be sold for between $250,000 and $500,000.
4: An excerpt of Jonas Kaufman singing the Mariah Carey mega hit, All I Want For Christmas Is You, became instantly memeable last week and drew ire from the opera community. But... Is Kaufman laughing all the way to the bank as his newest album, It's Christmas, rises to the top of the classical charts?
1: Brooklyn Academy of Music has announced that the organization's president, Katie Clark, will leave in January 2021 to accept another opportunity. Clark, the violinist-turned-arts executive, joined BAM in 2015 and led an expansion of the institution's campus and the presentation of new artistic programming.
2: It's bad news in Norway, as the Norwegian National Opera and Ballet cancels all November performances after an employee of the company tested positive for COVID. That action beat the city of Oslo's decision to lock down by only a few days.
3: And bad news in Stockholm. It is with a heavy heart that we have to announce that we are canceling all public activities until December 31st. This is of course a sad and heavy message. Even though the practice of stage art is important, it must not perish human health said Royal Swedish Opera CEO Birgitta Svenden in a statement.
0: Opera Orlando has announced that it will return to live performances with a Dee Mouse themed showcase. Said executive director and singer Gabriel Pricer, in addition to getting input from fellow opera and theater companies who have started to reopen, we are incorporating CDC recommend- recommendations, local official guidance, and input from our company partner Orlando Health in preparing to launch our 2020-21 season. The Flying Bat Showcase will be presented in December.
3: The San Francisco Opera moved its costume sale online last week in order to fundraise for its employees. 500 costumes were snatched up on Friday alone, with prices ranging from the double digits to around $1,000. Quote, I think you can actually wear most of the stuff we have, anywhere from parties to costume balls, said costume shop manager Jay Altizer. You can dress up your children as peasants. Ah, yes, every parent's dream, right, George?
1: Yeah, Ashley, I did that years ago. On the disabled list, the Teatro Real de Madrid is set to make adjustments to its production of Ruzalka. According to the theater's announcement, tenor Eric Cutler has broken his Achilles tendon during rehearsal, but will go on for his scheduled performances as the prince on crutches.
2: Exit stage right, the bass baritone Thomas Hammonds, who sang more than 250 times at the Met Opera, died suddenly at the age of 68. He created the role of Henry Kissinger in the world premiere of Nixon in China in 1987 at Houston Grand Opera.
0: And tenor Samuel Hall died at age 47 from injuries sustained in a motorcycle accident in his hometown of Columbus, Ohio. Hall had returned to his singing after a long career working in technology and began an extensive career at regional opera companies, including St. Petersburg Opera, Opera Tampa, and Opera Columbus.
4: And on this day, November 16th, In 1850, it was the first performance of Verdi's opera *Stefelio* at the Teatro Grande in Trieste. In 1895, composer and conductor Paul Hindemith was born in Hanau, Germany. In 1896, Lawrence Tibbett, the American baritone, was born in Bakersfield, California. In 1908, Arturo Toscanini made his conducting debut in Aida at the Metropolitan Opera. In 1940, or maybe 1941, it was the birth of Bulgarian soprano Gena Dimitrova. And in 1954, Scottish conductor
0: Donald Runicles was born.
1: And that's your 2-minute drill. <laughs> <laughs>
0: this is an important number to crunch. Yes. It's, it's, it's such a delicate opening.
6: I don't want a lot Oliver. for Christmas.
0: That's There's not what just I was one expecting. Thing I need. Oh no What do you need, Jonas? Uh, Underneath uh,
4: the, Christmas tree, uh, the Rex Harrison approach
6: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Is he talking to I me? Wish come true.
6: True. I,
1: want for <laughs> I... Oh. Oh. Don't oh, here comes
0: There's supposed to be a riff there
1: that crescendo was off the charts.
3: I I I don't I don't, I don't want, want it. I,
0: <laughs>
1: I, I don't want it. How how can we unhear that? Is that such a thing possible?
0: A proper I, German I, lads version of Mariah Carey. Don't it's hate, just but guys.
3: So bizarre, Oliver. Can you unshare your screen? It's just upsetting me. It's what? just upsetting
4: me. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say before we bring on our special guest. That maybe, just maybe, this is an American song that European audiences actually like, and just like we hear covers of things. It's the Christmas
0: Carol of our time.
4: Yeah,
3: it absolutely is. And they love, and just like you know, just
4: like we celebrated Renee Fleming singing "Death Capricciti," for example. Uh, Maybe the Europeans are celebrating their own artists. The Germans are celebrating their Jonas, you know, singing an American pop star, you know.
2: I unironically enjoy this album. You guys are all wrong.
3: (laughs) I am am all about some cross-genre turning things on its ear. I've built a freaking career out of it, okay? Like, I am definitely one who's usually in full support of this. There's just something about this. It's not quite to the camp level of the Vienna last Christmas. It's, like, it's close, Uh, but it's not
0: Hall of Fame. And so I'm just mad
3: and sad, and I want to go lay down. Like, that's all I want. Uh,
2: well, luckily, we have our uh, special guest to give us a definitive ruling on uh, the Jonas Kaufmann Christmas album, Hot or Not. The most
0: important news of the week. Zach, what's
7: what's your hot take? I think it's the hottest summer jam of 2020. Yeah! <laughs> there we go.
1: There
4: so, Zach Finkelstein, you have been so busy doing so many <laughs> things, and then all of a sudden you drop these bombs um, that make everybody wonder, how come nobody's been collecting this data? How come it takes you to put the work in so that we can really have the data to show what we all have been thinking? Um, thank you so much for this recent article in Middle Class Artists. And the title, for those you who haven't seen it yet, published uh, a week ago today, Emerging Opera Singers Now Pay for Online Auditions. Point. Are companies watching them? Mm. Zach, what can you tell us about which American companies are actually watching auditions?
7: I can tell you a lot of things. Um, So, you know, I've been looking at young artists issues for a while now. And, you know, the hot story this fall everyone's been talking about is this audition consortium. And it's a group. I mean, it sounds it sounds Dr. Evil-esque, but it's actually such a great idea. Um, It's 12 companies led by Houston Grand Opera Mm -hmm. And um, the idea is to sort of streamline the application process where, you know, it all is on in the same date. Um, There's a similar application. It's not quite at the level of a common application like a college, you know, essay. Um, But there are, you know, um, economies of scale where everything's a little bit easier in theory. Um, And so that was the that was the pitch that I think these companies were making to Singers is, you know, it's going to be easier. It's going to be more equitable, Mm -hmm. less of a headache. Um, we're all trying to get through this, and I know there were also, you know, major steps forward on application fees. Um, I think some of them charge nothing, and some of them charge as little as five dollars. So, you know, on paper, this all sounded great, and then reports started coming in from young artists saying, you know, very tech savvy young artists, um, that hey, you know, these are hosted on YouTube's, and I have YouTube's analytics, uh, YouTube analytics. Let's let's take a look under the hood. Um, And because, you know, embedded views in third-party sites on YouTube are counted as views, Mm. um, they were able to see that, you know, sites coming from insert name of application site um, were averaging a certain amount of time. And that was not the full time of an ARIA. And in fact, some people showed that, you know, their second or third ARIA didn't really have any views. Um, Mm. So I interviewed a lot of people. Um, I think the final tally was closer to 20, but I think conservatively I said 15. And... um, you know the the main finding was that um, uh, there weren't <laughs> there weren't twelve views for twelve applications. Let's just put it that way. And um, you know if there were a lot of views, they were generally you know sort of flitting around like thirty seconds here, forty five seconds there. Um, one person who applied to fourteen young artist programs, um, uh, one of her views got eight. Uh, one of her arias got eight second view um, from the oh. application site. So. You know, some pretty shocking statistics on what we had all sort of thought in our heart of hearts, but had prayed was not true. Um, You know, and the data, it's not 100 percent definitive. It's, you know, it's only 15 people, but it does. It is pretty devastating to look at Um, based on the amount of money that singers are putting into these auditions. I mean, my first case study. Uh, Rebecca, she put $5,000 including lessons and coachings into 14 auditions and she didn't and sorry, 14 applications to audition. Mm -hmm. Let's just be clear for those who don't follow. Yeah, she didn't get a single audition. So, you know, and I think she got five views on her first video, a minute and 10 seconds. And these are these are arias. It's not they're not like, you know, two minute bops on the radio. These are like four or five minute arias. Um, and it's, you know, it's pretty clear that they're sort of skipping around to different sections and checking for, you know, runs and high notes and cadenzas or, or whatever, and then moving on as fast as possible. Because, you know, to their credit, um, these companies are receiving record numbers of applications. Um, I think uh, it said in the article Pittsburgh had a, almost a 50% increase in applications this year. <laughs> so just a wild amount of people applying um, and the fact that it's, you know, the wild, wild west on technology in these, I mean, they're not setting ground rules is part of the problem. Yeah. So what it, it instead of providing an equitable, um, uh, you know, level playing field across, you know, all economic and, um, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, it basically, you know, some people are spending $2,000 on a microphone setup and some people are using these little apps with digital, like, deet, do, deet, do, deet, do, deet, you know, these little like <laughs> digital pianos and recording on there on, you know, a, a sixth generation iPhone or, or an Android and I mean, don't tell me that you don't take this into consideration. Like, there's a reason every person on YouTube has a ring light. There's a reason that every singer bought a, that could bought a microphone. It's because aesthetics matter and, and um, you know, the voice matters. Like, high-frequency voices are much harder to capture in certain situations. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm, I know that mm -hmm. it's a big problem for sopranos, um, even on certain microphones. So, you know, there are inequities built into this process that were not removed. In fact, they were expanded upon. Um, And um, it it just goes to show that this is just sort of a fresh coat of paint on the same systemic inequity that all emerging artists are facing right now.
2: Uh, well, obviously this is a pretty big problem um but i am kind of at a loss for like solutions do you have any ideas as to what we I problem? have actually
4: i was going to propose and i don't know what you think about this Zach, and maybe you could be the person to amplify my solution and give me credit um <laughs> maybe we need to go i mean it let's just be more realistic about how these auditors are using this these materials maybe each singer can do short videos of passage work, of high notes, of important phrases of things like their highlights reel and send that. And then if the auditor wants to hear that person in audition, then that's when they request a full thing, like a, you know, a full aria or an in-person audition.
7: No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I've, you know, the Oregon Bach Festival, I applied a few years ago and they, they just wanted 32 bars of cum zancto spiritum from the mass in B minor at like lightning pace and a couple of scales and, you know, recite some German. And that gave them what they wanted because they were looking for people who can wiggle, who have pretty voices, who have good range, and who can who can sing in German well. I mean, so I think, you know, it's co- companies, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to what companies are going through right now because they weren't expecting this many applications. They're overloaded, you know, half their, in some cases, half or most of their staff are furloughed or, or you know, mm-hmm. being unpaid or working... You know, wild hours right now just to get this done. So I totally understand that, but in a way, it's their own fault because they created this. Like the young artist, the young artist didn't emerge from you know the cave with man and fire and young <laughs> artist programs. This is this is a very recent uh, invention by companies um, and the application process through this application site. Um, is a very recent phenomenon and requiring this much, you know, requiring you to fill out, you know, give you a, a CV and fill out the exact same information on an application and send in three arias in different languages and have different arias for a second round. I mean, if you know what you want, just say it. Like, that's what singers want. They want transparency in the audition process. And, you know, that also goes to who is coming back. So companies are not being clear of who is being rehired. Yeah. And that's especially problematic in 2020 because the 2019 Young Artist programs were largely canceled. And those people were given, many of them were given invitations to return. So if you have 800 people applying to your Young Artist program and half of those people are Sopranos, okay, that's not an exaggeration. That's pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, and you lose even one of four Soprano spots to a returning students that is a devastating change in probability. Right. That has to be made clear. It just has to be, you have to be more transparent. So exactly, streamline the application, give it what you want. Um, and I go through a whole list of, of, of ways to fix the process at the end of the essay. Um, but it is, I think the most important problem in opera is fixing what's happening at the bottom. Because you can't get diversity, equity, inclusion on stage, in administrators offices, on the boards, if you don't have it, in the practice rooms at conservatories, if you don't have it um, in the young artists programs, and if you just let anyone buy a thousand dollar mic and send an application, um, you're not doing you're not doing it right. I'm sorry, you're just not. You need there needs to be accountability and transparency in this process. And you know, despite the best of intentions, that did not happen this fall.
4: Zach, we want to talk about the uh, AGMA constitution amendments, but before we do, can you tell us about the Soloist Coalition Young Artists?
7: Sure. So um, I spoiler alert, I'm in I'm in basically every group that would accept me, so <laughs> <I'm> in, <laughs> including the group I made myself. I'm a middle class artist. So I'm in the I'm on the board of governors of Agma. Full disclaimer. And I'm also in the Solus Coalition. Um, so a Solus Coalition Young Artists is an advocacy group for young artists. Um, it's very new. Um, they're doing exciting work. They're providing forms for young artists to come and talk and debate. Um, they're doing surveys, they're doing real research on young artists, which I'm going to publish this week, um, on how young artists are feeling about the process. Um, they're, they're listening to their members, um, and they're doing great work, and I strongly suggest anyone who is an emerging artist, you don't have to be a member of AGMA, um, just show up to one of their forums, they're all over Facebook, um, I think they're on Twitter too. Um, and, uh, get on their mailing list and they just do amazing work. And I really highly recommend that every emerging artist gets involved because the more we talk to each other and the more we, you know, put sunlight on these issues, the better it's going to be for everybody.
4: Ashley, do you have, uh, questions you want to ask Zach about the, how to vote?
3: Well, I mean, I, I'm sure he's got lots of ideas on this. In fact, I told the gentleman earlier before you hopped on, I was like, "Listen, I'll vote whichever way Zach tells me to, because I trust his opinion." <laughs> <laughs> oh no! But I'm also not going to ask you that on air because I think it's really important that we we give sort of these organizations platforms, but we don't necessarily sway folks to be you should think this way, you should think this way. So if you're hearing this acronym AGMA and American Guild of Musical Artists, and you're not sure what that is, for for those that may not do this for a living, maybe friends, uh, the Uncle Franks, the Aunt Becky of the world. I want to give you a quick kind of context primer on what this is. Uh, so basically, AGMA is the American Guild of Musical Artists. It is the uh, musician's union that most people in the opera world must be a part of to be employed at the highest echelons of this art form, and even the not so high echelons of this art form. Uh, so one of the things that has been a big stumbling block at the moment is that you know we spend all this time working and going to school and honing this craft and going through lessons and coachings and learning foreign languages, and you get your first big job, great. Now you have to join the musicians union to legally be employed by this house. To do this, you're going to have to pay some dues, some initiation fees. And if you're common and cold, and this is the first time you're ever going to be a member of this union, you're going to have to pay a hefty set of fees that are going to be upwards of around a $1,000. So when I got one of my first big jobs, when I... Clearly did not have a thousand dollars on hand. I had to have that money in hand to give to this union. Otherwise, I would lose this gig. So the reason that we will often talk about this union and all of the things that go on with this union is that they're, they govern, uh, most of how all of these folks in this industry that we love are employed. And to even get in the door, uh, there's, there's a, heavy chunk of change that you got to have on hand
7: i was in all the meetings that went through this line by line for the board uh, amendments and i'm also in the solos coalition and that recently um endorsed the members petition it's it wasn't part of a solos coalition group but um some of us were involved in signing it um so we voted to uh, endorse it and so we you know went over that in gory detail and i probably spent you know 40 50 hours on these two documents Um, And voters are going to be given a choice. And um, I'm sorry, I I can't be um, neutral on this. Um, I've made it very clear that I support the members petition, both in Board of Governors, um, you know, conversations with my Board of Governors, um, and also in the soulless coalition. So um, I do think it comes down to three things. Um, The first is self-advocacy. So what I like about the members petition is it guarantees each member classification a spot in the leadership. And so right now, I mean, without getting in too far into the weeds, you know, there are, there are choristers, there are soloists, there are dancers, there are, you know, um, there are directors. So like, you know, the members petition allows, um, it has uh, suggests no, or um, has no board apport- appointed members of executive leadership, and all of them are member elected, and all seven categories are represented um, in the executive leadership. So that's a, that's a big change. Um, The second important thing is access to information. So I know a major concern with artists with AGMA is, um, you know, between the articles that are coming out at NPR and New York Times is the idea of secrecy. I'm not going to comment on that, but there is a sense that um, in the press and among some members that AGMA has a secrecy issue.
3: Yeah. Like why Um, are my dudes buying a building in Manhattan at the height of a pandemic (laughs) is a question I've heard from other members.
7: (laughs) That is a question I've also heard <laughs> yeah. um, and I will leave it at that mm-hmm. um, But yeah, so you know access to information is so critical like you know the data that I'm publishing on middle class artists is allowing artists to be heard. It's allowing artists to make decisions based on good information that's being, if not hidden from them, um, basically not advertised. So part of it is like there's all this great data but it's not advertised. So you know if people want to learn more about, um, what's happening in their leadership of AGMA? You know the member, uh, the member proposed petition. It opens board minutes up to AGMA member scrutiny, and it removes restrictions on AGMA members viewing board meetings on Zoom. The idea be- being it's member driven up, and not from the top down. Um, and then my last point I would probably make is um, based on economic fairness. So who who benefits and who doesn't? Um, and I'm sorry to put it so bluntly, but um, Charging thousand dollars for someone to join AGMA is not equitable. Mm-hmm. It just isn't. Um, and the members' petition um, lowers the initiation fee to protect our most vulnerable members—the people that I talk about all the time on middle-class artists—and um, um, you know, it, it it protects them. It um, removes the regressive dues cap, so there's a there's basically a flat tax on income among the wealthiest AGMA members. So the people earning you know a lot of money um they get they have a flat tax on that and so the idea is to remove that have some of that kind of go to the bottom to subsidize the $1000 that you know i mean that no one has cuz they're $80,000 in debt from conservatory and they yeah. they spent $5000 on microphones and lessons mm-hmm. um, so you know the idea behind that is economic fairness and um you know i really do think and if it wasn't obvious from what i write um i think we have a moral obligation um, to put the poor and the vulnerable first in our industry And that's almost always emerging and marginalized groups, um, emerging artists and marginalized groups. And uh, the members petition really takes that into account. So, um, you know, I'm going to put all my cards on the table. Um, I supported the members petition and I voted to, um, I voted to uh, to, uh, eliminate, raise and eliminate the dues cap. And in in that way, lower the initiation fee. And um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the pitch I would make knowing you know, being in both rooms (laughs) and probably (laughs) pissing off a lot of people in one room by saying that. Um, But that's how I feel. Um, I really do think it comes down to economic fairness and equity. equity. And, um, you know, every word I say, I believe. And um, whatever you hear on Facebook, Facebook, because it's bananas right now, (laughs) just understand that, you know, a lot of people looked at it. This is my take. Uh, I'm in a bunch of groups. And so I understand issues in a way that maybe others don't. Um, if you want to take that into account, great. If you want to take, you know, my reputation into account, great. Um, I, I much prefer if you read them yourselves, but I also understand that not everyone has the time to do that. Um,
1: well, we'll definitely make sure we get those links on the website. Zach Zach Spicklestein of middleclassartist.com. So in-depth, so truthful, and so insightful. Thank you so much, buddy, for hanging out with us.
7: Thanks so much for having me on.
1: Let's wrap this show up. Good
7: call. Bad Call
0: on Opera Box Score.
1: All right. Such a pleasure, as always, having Zach Finkelstein on the show. Middleclassartist.com. True American
2: hero, Zach Finkelstein.
4: That is some white excellence for you there.
1: Everybody's (laughs) sweetheart. (laughs) Good call, bad call. Oliver Camacho, what do you got?
4: So this literally debuted just a few days ago, I think on Saturday or Friday. Um, It's Annie Lennox. Performing Dido's Lament, Purcell, Dido Aeneas. When I Am Late in Earth. It is so good. Get ye to the internet, to the (laughs) YouTubes, and watch this. This is crossover done on the level of Klaus Nomi. Like, just so brilliant, so artistic. And will introduce people to this aria, which is just one of the best pieces of music of all time. But here for a new audience... And I'm just very happy that this thing exists.
1: Cummings. If
0: you're looking for something to watch this week while restrictions start to creep up, uh, Madrid is rebroadcasting their novel socially distant production of La Traviata from earlier in this pandemic on OperaVision.eu with an all-star cast of Marina Rebecca, Michael Fabiano, and Artur Braczynski. Like, that's a really good cast.
1: Weston Williams, pretty as always. Ashley Hardgrave.
3: Uh, my good call this week has nothing to do with, uh, opera, but everything to do with soul restoring. Uh, it's Henry James Garrett, who is a cartoonist in the UK. He has put out a book called This Book Will Make You Kinder. Uh, and it is about, uh, how his career went from silly cartooning to drawing cartoons with empathy, to what does empathy look like, to we should all be kinder, how am I kind, How can I teach the world to be kinder without trying to pose as a moral authority? Uh, and it, it will in fact make you kinder. Can't you tell?
1: I saw the title. I thought it was This Book Will Make You Kinder.
3: I thought it was about German
1: Different kind of book.
0: And-
3: Different.
0: <laughs> Different kind of book, George.
3: That's
1: it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at normwaddell.com N-O-R-M-W-O-D-E-L.com Our theme song is Vodka Inferno written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter and Instagram we're at Opera Box Score. Podcast version of our show is available on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score would be totally cool. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For our guest, Lawrence Brownlee, and that CAD, Tobias Wright, along with your co hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera while you watch your fantasy football team get crushed. We're back with an all-new show next week when we give thanks for all things opera. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more bare trees. Join us!